Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What is going on today? Well, today is another great day in the life of the What Difference Doesn't Make podcast. Yes, it is. It's always a great day on the What Difference Doesn't Make podcast. But this is really nice because we're going to talk to the the architect of our musical DNA in a way. Uh, This is Miles Copeland, president of IRS Records and just a, a guy who recognizes great talent. Miles Copeland was such an enormous piece of our youth, our growing up, as, as Dave said, he's in our DNA, not literally, figuratively. So we really, we're very excited about talking to him about that, you know, some of our favorite artists and, and his story itself is so yeah. fascinating. By the way, yeah, manager of a little band called The Police. I don't know if you're familiar with this band, but uh, this was the band that took him into the stratosphere and it was because of The Police that we got into IRS Records and we got Squeeze and we got R.E.M., and we got the Go-Go's and the Bangles and all these amazing bands that uh, we love so much. So before we get into the book, Holly, tell people about YouTube and where we are on What Difference Does It Make? You can find us on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make podcast. Please subscribe. We are very excited for you to see all that we put out there. We do lots of outtakes from our chats and hopefully things that you'll find as interesting as we do. Yeah, so cool. check us out on YouTube. Spoiler alert, some of the things we talk about with Miles will not be on this podcast, but they will be on the YouTube page. So subscribe to our podcast, subscribe to YouTube. Let's talk with Miles Copeland. His book is Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hey! There I am. Woo! Perfect. All right. Miles Copeland. We're happening. We are. Are you in your castle? Is this a castle we're in? I am in a castle. That's exactly where I am. And the name of this castle is? Manawat. Manawat. Okay, that's how you pronounce We We were reading about it because this is... Yeah, apparently it comes from the Latin muratum, which means wall, because it used to be a Roman camp, you know, 2,000 years ago. We should all know the story behind our homes. Yeah, and now it's a songwriting camp. Well, now we do songwriting, we do painting, we do uh, book writing, script writing, uh, photography. Um, but yeah, it's become quite well known as a songwriting center because we did a deal with ASCAP now and they, they come. And then before that, I used to do it myself with Jerry Moss. And we had people like Carol King and even Ted Nugent came <laughs> and Jeff Beck. <laughs> and, um, you know, Bon, jo- bon Jovi came, you know. Right. You welcome Ted Nugent with open arms. Well, he was actually not quite as nutty then as he is now. <laughs> he gave me his bow and arrow. He wanted to go out hunting deer, you know, and I said, fine. Then he gave, he just handed me his, his, his hair, have this bow and arrow. I got a picture with me and Ted with the bow and arrow. <laughs> Did you catch anything or what? I mean, oh, what, well, what did no, the, it was pretty impressive bow though, but uh, he, he never did find a deer oh. anyway. <laughs> okay. I'd have to say that's good. Yeah, probably. Is there wildlife on your grounds? Well, we we see deer running through every night. We have wild boar. Uh, We have the occasional wild Frenchman. (laughs) Uh, And uh, we have, you know, the normal. Well, I guess the the main things in France right now would be the sanglier, which would be the wild boar. And, um, you know, you see, we we do see deer every now and then, but we we don't have any tame deer, you know. So we have a few dogs, though. They must love it. That's a lot of roaming yeah. ground for them. That's very cool. You have to protect the dogs from the wild boar? Well, no, because <laughs> the dogs actually chase the wild boar. You know, they, they, um, the wild boar are very uh, secretive. They hide out, you know. So the reason we're, we're talking with you is you've got this book, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business. You're not the first of your siblings to put out a book. Two of your brothers put out books as well. Did you use those as, as blueprints to uh, kind of guide you as to how you would put out this book? Well, I, you know, the, the, the truth is that, you know, well, Ian put out a book a long time ago. My brother, Ian, my, the middle brother, who was the agent, you know, who was sort of uh, the wild member of the family. And it was a fun book, you know. But uh, then my brother, Stuart, of course, the drummer of the police and, uh, you know, well-known and everything. So he he's done, I think he might even have done two books. I'm not sure. Um, my father, of course, did several books, you know, since his, his days in the CIA. So it seemed like the kind of thing that, you know, one day I would have to do a book. And I had lots of people saying to me, well, you got to do a book. You got to do a book, you know. And I kept thinking, you know, writing a memoir, talking about what I did. It sounded all sort of egotistical and all that, you know. And I thought, well, you know, I learned a lot of things from mistakes and from successes. So maybe it should be more of a motivational stroke, 
marketing book or something, you know, anyway. So I sort of started writing a little bit a few years ago and then kind of gave up. And then when the COVID thing happened and I'm sitting at home in LA stuck doing Mm -hmm. nothing, I started thinking of all those people saying, well, you got to write a memoir, you know, and I thought, well, what the hell, what else am I going to do? So I started writing. But like the title says, two steps forward, one step back, it, it, it does go into, you know, the reality that I don't care how smart you are, how successful you are, you're going to have a misstep every now and then. And that's your step backward, you know, but just keep going forward and somehow you'll you'll get there in the end. I made a point of giving lessons and in it that were ones that I learned from mistakes just as much as I learned from successes. Would you ever consider, because I found that every chapter could have been a book in itself or every few chapters could have been, you know, has its own story, but growing up in the Middle East and and your family, would you ever write a book solely about your experience as a child or a youth growing up in the Middle East with your parents and specifically what they did? Now that you've mentioned it, maybe I should. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I hadn't really, you know, I, I, you know, like I was saying, I I didn't really contemplate writing a book. I mean, you know, you have to sit down and it's, you know, kind of tedious, but writing about oneself and, you know, one of the things I did do is I read my brother's book, you know, and I read all the other books that were written about the police and Andy Summers book and Sting's book. And a lot of other people who wrote about the various bands or IRS records or the Go-Go's, whatever. And one of the things I realized was that a lot of people made stuff up or got things wrong, you know. So I, I decided that I needed to at least correct some of the mistakes or, at least, you know. So I made a point of calling up people that I hadn't talked to in years, you know, and just said, look, you know, here's what I remember. What do you remember? You know, and so I talked to all the people and and I think, you know, I was pretty accurate. But um, going back to the beginning, I, I, the part of the problem was, you know, I mean, I've been in the business 50 years. You know, what do you put in or what do you leave out? What's going to bore people? Maybe growing up in the Middle East would have, you know, been appealing to a certain group of people, but probably not others. I don't know. So I, I kind of like condensed it to a degree, which I thought would be a good cross section of, you know, what I did and what I learned, basically. You're looking for the mainstream hit. You're doing the thing that seems to attract a wider net for right now before you niche it up. And- yeah. You know, one of the things that, that kind of scared me about writing it, you know, writing about stars, you know, I was afraid that if I went to a publisher, uh, you know, they would say, well, we, we want some more dirt on Sting, you know, and you know, give me some, give me some dirt on whoever, you know, and I was, I, I never really, well, there really wasn't that much dirt anyway, but you know, the fact of the matter is my point was not to do some great expose. And, uh, you know, there were plenty of funny stories and wild things that were happening. One could, one could get away with telling the truth. And that was plenty, you know, you didn't have to kind of exaggerate to, you know, bring dirt into the equation to help sell the books or something, you know. In a way, it was kind of cathartic writing a book, sort of forced you to remember things. And and it's amazing what you forget as well, you know. And so I had to go and re-remember stuff. I had to call up people and, you know, and I I, uh, had some pretty interesting phone calls with some people from from the past, you know, who have all been very flattering, actually. It's been been great. Has anybody wildly disagreed with any of your accounts? Uh, one person did, but it wasn't the book actually, but, uh, I had a lot of people like what, one of my favorite people was, you know, like I talk about in the book was Pat McDonald, you know, who was also the most frustrating of artists because he turned down like $3 million, you know, because he wouldn't let his song be used in a commercial. And, uh, I said in the book that I thought he was crazy, you know, but I still loved him because he was a great songwriter and I always invited him to my songwriter retreats and he would just not agree to let his songs be used in a commercial. And I thought, how stupid can you be? You know, I mean, when I got the offer from um, Ray-Ban to do future so bright, I got to wear shades, you know, I called him up and said, great news, Pat, you could buy a house now. I'm just about to send you a million dollars. And he pleaded with me not to do the deal. And I just thought, what an idiot. But he sent me a very nice note a couple of weeks ago saying, look, I bought the book. I appreciate all the good things you said about me. And any negative, he said, I probably deserved it. <laughs> so that was Pat McDonald. It's a lot of artists, right? In the beginning, they don't want to, it's, is it selling out? Well, you know, that was one of the big things. And it was, you know, when, when I finally did the deal later on with Sting and Jaguar, you know, I think it changed everybody's mind. They realized that, you know what? If you choose the commercial well, it's a cool product. Why not be associated? And it had a huge impact for Jaguar and a huge impact for Sting, you know. So 
I think the rule was a little bit overused and it just it was accepted as a, you know, that's, you just don't let your song go. But I never really saw it like that. You know, I, to me, it was like, well, if it's cool, why not do it? Well, that's a good fit. The Jaguar was a good fit. As you were telling the story, it, it kind of happened by accident. Uh, you, you didn't even realize you were making a commercial until you saw the video. Is that like we put Sting in a yeah, Jaguar? We, we, you know, I mean, a lot of the things that happened all along the way, you know, whether it be, you know, the police didn't want to play me Roxanne. You know, they thought that I would hate it because it was a ballad and it was, it was, it was a sweet, low tempo ballad. But that was the song that I, you know, when I heard it, I realized that was the thing that was the truth of the police. And that I looked at them and said, gentlemen, you've written a classic. It's bigger than me. It's going to change our lives. And with the Jaguar thing, you know, again, it was a situation where we didn't plan it. It just so happened the Jaguar car was used. And it looked pretty cool. And when you looked at the video, you kind of, you got two messages. Well, I am listening to the song, but wow, that car looks pretty cool. So I realized that we'd made a commercial for the car. And I then I approached the Jaguar and said, look, you know, I've done this commercial for your car. Uh, by the way, I'll let you use it if uh, you'll make it look like it's a ad for my record. I need to find a way to promote Sting's record. And if you'll do that, then I'll give it to you for free. And they went for it, and uh, it was. It's turned out to be the most successful tie-in ever in the music business, and also probably the biggest budget. I mean, they and they spent eighteen million dollars on TV buys, which helped that record just go through the roof. You know, it was amazing. Budgets are a little different from uh, music to, to to ad agencies. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, that was a great lesson because the budget that A and M had for the entire Sting album was one point eight. What well, it wasn't even two million dollars. Whereas the TV budget for Jaguar was 18 million. But what I didn't know at the time was that, you know, I, I assumed like anybody, you know, Jaguar wanted to sell cars and Sting would be a good association and it would help you sell cars. But no, they had another ulterior motive. And that was that Jaguar, unbeknownst to me, was looked upon as a old person's car. So their problem was that if the average buyer was over 65, they were figuring, well, in 10 years, there ain't going to be no more buyers alive to buy our car. <laughs> so we've got to lower the age group of people buying Jaguars. So their target was to get it down to 45. Well, of course, Sting was the ideal artist. And in fact, that's what happened. So the average buyer of Jaguar dropped to 45. They sold tons of cars. And of course, Sting's record took off. So it works for everybody. How do you even recreate something like that? <laughs> well, it was, you know, a happy accident. If you look back at some of the greatest inventions, they were accidents in the mm -hmm. lab room, whether it be an aspirin or penicillin or I don't know, whatever the, all those <laughs> things were that got invented, you know, by mistake. But that's part of the, the story of the book, you know, just keep your eyes open. You never know where the, mm -hmm. the change is going to come from. You know, like some people said to me, you know, over the years, you know, I'd get asked questions. You're like, you know, what was the most important show you ever did? Of course, they're assuming it would be, well, the police at Shea Stadium, 80,000 people going crazy or staying in Brazil at the Maracanã, you know, and, and 200,000 people. And I would say, well, no, it was none of those. It was actually a show in northern New York where the police played to four people, four. There were more people on stage than there were on, in the audience. But one of those four people happened to be a DJ who got enamored with the group because they walked out on stage and said, look, the hell with this. I mean, these people paid their money. Let's give them a great show, even though there's only four of them. And they did. That DJ was named Oedipus. He goes back to Boston, starts banging the Roxanne mm -hmm. single, which the police had given him, becomes a regional hit, gets noticed by A&M Records, who calls me up and says, is that my band? And I said, well, it is. Yeah. And he said, well, let's get him back over here. Let's promote the record. And I said, yeah. Let's do it. So that was the start of the police. Okay, here are some amazing stories from Miles Copeland. As Miles kind of tells you, money kind of pays for things. So we're going to take a break so we can get some funding for this podcast and continue to give you some great stuff. So we'll be right back. We're back with Miles Copeland on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Well, your career kind of started as a happy accident. You did not plan to be in the music industry. I mean, you. I think after you graduated from college, it was like, okay, what, what now? 
you happened to to see some bands. Can you kind of touch on like at the start of your career, how, how you kind of fell into it? Well, yeah, it was again, one of those accidents really. I mean, a, a British, I was in Beirut doing my MA degree at the American university, you know, thinking I would go into some sort of middle East business. I didn't really know what, but you know, I figured, well, you know, I'll get an MA degree and, and a British group comes to Lebanon to play in them in, you know, in the summer, which the, the, some promoter decided he would bring a British group over. They weren't a particularly big group or anything. They were called Rupert's People. The promoter approached me to help out on communicating with the band and putting a show together and all this sort of thing. So I met the group and helped them out of some scrapes because the promoter was a bit flaky. And uh, then I graduated and uh, went to America thinking I would get drafted, which I did, actually. The group came to see me in London and said, well, we want you to be our manager. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? I don't know anything about the music business. I've been in Lynn Beirut for the last God knows how many years, you know, what do I know about music, let alone the music business? And they said, yeah, but you got a good attitude. It was like one of those moments where I said, you know, I, I got drafted. I reported for duty and got rejected. I have high arches. So unfortunately, I never didn't know about bone spurs. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of friends who were thinking about everything they could that, you know, to figure ways to get out of the army. But I figured, well, what the hell? My brother Ian was already in Vietnam and I figured it was an experience that I'd have to go through. And so I reported for duty like a good American, but I got rejected. So I then went back to London and the group came to see me and said, okay, be our manager. And I thought, well, what the hell? My father thought I was a bit crazy, but you know, he said, well, that's what you want to do. And I started learning about the business, probably made a lot of mistakes, which was part of the game. And that's how I got in that just by fluke. Your dad was supportive because he didn't want you to be CIA government or government or anything. Well, he wanted me to go into the CIA because it had changed so much from the days that he had been in there, where it was really an intellectual organization where you really wanted to know what's going on in the world. During Vietnam, it became operational, where they were busy getting up to things they probably shouldn't have. He thought that, that the people that were coming into the agency were not the kind of people that I would enjoy working with. So he talked me out of going into CIA, but he didn't talk me into what going what I should go into which was kind of a problem. It was like, well, what am I going to do? So I, I was sort of at loose ends, which I guess was why I, you know, when, when this group said to me, well, be our manager, I thought, well, what the hell? I got nothing else to do. And he, he thought I should probably get a real job first and then go and start my own business. But I thought, well, you know, at least I know I like music. What the hell? And there I was. I was in the music business. So it was this. It was one of the band members who just recognized something in you that, which is crazy. It was. Just, it just took one guy, you know, a band saying, "Oh, we like what." There's something about you that that's going to work for us. I guess. I mean, I, I scratch my head and wonder what it was. I didn't know what I wasn't supposed to know, right, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, you would do things that just seemed to make sense, you know. Whereas the if you were educated, you would think there was a set of rules you had to follow or something. Well, I didn't know what the rules were, so I made them up as I went along. And I guess that was why it sort of worked because in England. In the, in the late 60s and early 70s, it was pretty staid, really. I mean, I remember somebody saying to me, if it hasn't been done, there must be a good reason for it. And I thought, well, that's a pretty interesting approach. If that was true, there would probably be no wheel, you know, there'd be no invention. And then I heard somebody say, you know, in a grocery store, always stand in the longest line. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. I just come from Beirut where the idea of a line is just, there's no such thing as a line. The whole object of the exercise is to butt in front of everybody else and be there first. So I thought, well, why on earth would you stand in the longest line? And the person told me, because they know something. They must know something. <laughs> I'm thinking, man, this is the country for me. If people are that stupid, <laughs> this country is going to be a snap. And of course, that was part of the, the lesson. You know, I, just use your instinct and your good common sense and apply it. And that's what I did. Well, you did have some good ideas, but there was one idea, I guess, initially in your career. You wanted to take your bands, your roster of bands, and put them all on tour in one package, which is a great idea, and it's done to this day. But this was Star Trek in 75, and I think there were some issues with, with this tour. Can you kind of talk, well, talk us through it? One of my main acts was Lou Reed, and who apparently knew nothing about the tour because he had left the agency that uh, I had made the deal with. As the day was approaching that he was supposed to join the tour, which was a good idea, basically that, you know, I would put all these headliner acts on and I'd have my acts on it as well. And 
that would make them more exposed and bigger. It was sort of like a Lollapalooza or one of these other big festival tours that like are happening today. But Lou wasn't going to show up. Well, I finally found him in a hotel room in it was Australia or New Zealand or somewhere. And I, I talk about it in the book. I finally got through to his room and his assistant answered the phone. And I said, well, I need to know when Lou is coming. And the assistant said, well, Lou is not doing a tour. We don't know anything about a tour. And he's in the bathroom and now he can't come to the phone. Never. And I said, well, I'll wait. And they said, well, it might be a long wait. So what are you talking about? Well, he's been in there three days, and I don't see him coming out anytime soon. At that point, I knew the tour was yeah. in big trouble. So Lou never showed up. The promoters hit me, of course. I had to scamper around to find, to find a replacement, which I and Tina did, Turner did, which was a great show. But, of course, it cost a pretty penny, you know. And I ended up bankrupt, just well, on the verge of bankrupt and lost everything. All the bands wrote me off. I had no more money. And I was basically back down to zero or actually less than zero because I owed a lot of people money. It was a great lesson in what goes up can go down and it's not that difficult to go down. I guess this was one of the lessons. You didn't give up. I mean, I'm sure there were other options. I'm sure your dad might have said, okay, you gave this a try. We've got something for you. Well, it didn't actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> it just so happened that, again, a lucky accident is that at the same time as I was basically being written off by the music business, there was a whole other group of, you know, a new generation of people who were also being written off by the music business. And that was the punks. This was a new generation of artists, you know, who were 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. And uh, the music business decided that they can't play. And this is some sort of um, non-musical phenomena. They didn't realize it was really a generational change. These were kids that wanted their own heroes. They wanted to wear their own clothes. They didn't want to copy their, their siblings, their older siblings or their parents. And they wanted somebody to pay attention to them. Well, here I was. I knew the music business. I knew how to book a show. I knew how to get a group from A to B. So I figured the punks, they will take my phone call because uh, they didn't care that I didn't have any money because at least I paid attention to them. So I soon found myself at the forefront of the punk movement because I knew what I was doing and they needed somebody around them that knew what he was doing. So we were sort of in the same boat, both rejected by the establishment. <laughs> so we created our own establishment. And my brother Stuart, about the same time, one of the bands that I had been working with was Curved Air, which he was the drummer in. And that sort of ground to a halt. And so I talked him into getting excited about the punk thing, which he did because it excited him mainly because it was anti-establishment. And it was like, you can do it on your own. You don't have to have a big entourage. You don't have to have a lot of money. Just get out and do it. And this kind of appealed to him and he formed the police. And I, as the older brother, was booking police dates. And of course, I was also managing a little group called Squeeze. We're also very young. They they were all like 17, 18 years old. I was started work with all the punk groups, even, even the Sex Pistols. Before I knew it, I was a sort of at the center of the punk world. It was a pretty exciting time. So even though I was written off by the mainstream, the press had decided I was some sort of Svengali of this new punk, this outrageous punk movement. And when I booked the Sex Pistols into, into Holland and actually went with them, that made me acceptable to all the punks. You know, Billy Idol and all these people began to think, well, this guy must be okay. He's working with the Sex Pistols. I soon became the, one of the, the big players in the punk movement in England. You told a story about the Sex Pistols and, and Mal Malcolm McLaren about uh, discovering that they didn't necessarily want to play. Well, he didn't want them to play. They wanted to play. The story, as I recount in the book, was that I kept reading in the newspapers that, you know, no one would book the Sex Pistols because they were so outrageous. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a little weird, you know. I mean, people like notoriety. And so uh, I called up some promoters that I knew and I said, would you book the Sex Pistols? And they said, well, sure. So I'd go upstairs, Malcolm had an office above me in, in, a, in a crappy office building in, in the center of London. So and I'd go upstairs and say, Malcolm, good news. I, I found some shows for the Sex Pistols. You know, he'd give me some excuse as to why he couldn't do them. So I'd go downstairs and I'd call the promoter and say, well, those days don't work. Let's find some new ones. And I'd, I'd go back upstairs and say, well, I managed to change the dates. I did this a few times. And finally, he starts yelling at me. Like, don't you get it? I get more press saying the Sex Pistols can't get a gig than they can. And if you get gigs, you're ruining my whole rap. Get out of my office. And at that moment, I realized what he was all about. He was all about getting press. And as I left, I said, well, I did get an offer to do a show in Holland in case you're ever interested. And at that moment, he sort of stopped. Oh, 
Holland, we can do Holland. And that's when I went with Sex Pistols to, to Holland. But basically, he was all about, you know, notoriety, you know, getting noticed. Whereas uh, when I went with the band, I mean, it was pretty obvious to me. They, they liked, you know, get on stage and play to people and be a band. You know, they wanted to do gigs. They wanted to play. Can we go back to Squeeze for a minute? In the book, the feeling we got is you remain close to Jules Holland, but not so much with Difford and Tilbrook. Yeah, I think Squeeze was very difficult because they were they were a transition group. I, I signed them when I was still working with the, you know, the Climax Blues Band and Wishbone Ash and Curved Air and all that. Yeah, they were all 16 and 17 years old. They were more like the Beatles. You know, they were singing love songs and good solid pop songs but the group was really it was jules holland who was into boogie woogie and fun and he was just a good character bruce and glenn who were kind of very arty and into music and you know it was kind of hard to get to know them even then we brought in a drummer who was bigger than all of them put together you couldn't get a decent photograph of this group and so it was very hard to figure out who is squeeze what are they it was really two groups when later on it became obvious that they really were two groups and jules holland came to me and said well if i leave the group will you manage me i said sure i realized that one of his great talents was that he was just so likable and i got him to do the the police uh, show in Montserrat as a host, a TV host, and he was so good at it. He was noticed by British television, who then hired him to do The Tube, which was the biggest TV show in England for the music business. Now he's a OBE. He's one of the, probably has the biggest music show in England right now. And uh, we we continue to be good friends because he's one of these people that, you know, as I say in the book, there's those and the people look at the glass half empty and those that see it as half full. Well, he's a guy that sees things half full. And uh, that appealed to me because I'm the same. So nice to hear these things about some of your favorite artists but with squeeze i mean they wrote amazing songs i love their songs yeah. do you think it was their concerts or what what there just was no dynamic or chemistry with them they, or what they were not i mean the police understood the imagery and uh, you know i'd come up some wild idea like sting riding a, a camel dressed like lawrence of arabia with the pyramids in the background he'd get it instantly whereas squeeze would figure it's too contrived it's too you know, show business, you know, and so you were always kind of pushing. Uh, Jules was not like that. I would come up with some crazy idea of Jules pretending he was blind like Ray Charles, and he'd say, yeah, it sounds like fun, let's do it. But the other, you know, the Squeeze guys, they wrote great songs. One of the great elements of success in the music business is getting noticed and, you know, being a little outrageous. You know, getting on the radio is one thing. Kiss painted their faces, you know, Elvis Presley, shook his hips, Beatles had long hair. Go down the list. Elton John, wild clothes. Lady Gaga, wild clothes. Squeeze was always difficult to make them do something that would seem to be contrived. And I think they ended up being a lot bigger on the radio, but it was something where radio would play their songs over a long period of time, but not in a concentrated amount, which would have meant that you know, they would have had number one singles or something. But they did get to be, they had a couple of number two singles in England. You know, they did get to be pretty big worldwide and, and were successful. But I think that with the police, there were several elements that made it really successful. One, there were three guys, so it was cheap. Two, is they were prepared to do whatever it took. They were positive. Uh, so you could throw out some nutty idea and they were predisposed to say, well, why not? Let's do it. They would reject them every now and then, but they were open to ideas. And I think that's an important for a manager like me, you know, where I like to think of myself as an idea person. You know, you throw out an idea. If it's always rejected or it's always second guessed or, oh, God, what are my friends are going to think? Oh, my, I shouldn't do that. Pretty soon you stop coming up with ideas. So I always did better with those people that would go with some of the ideas. The police were certainly a perfect example. And of course, Jules Holland. The Go-Go's were a great example of a group which had all the gimmicks you could possibly want. Five girls doing their own songs and everything. It, it seemed like such an obvious winning formula. Yet... That's what got them rejected by every record company. I was the only one, only one that would sign them. So that, that's always been something that I always say is important. And one of the points in the book is that, look, acts might come along and say, look, it's all about the music, man. And I would say, well, no, it's not about the music. It's first about getting noticed. Because if nobody notices you, they're never going to hear your music. So music's only important as number two. Now you're noticed. Okay, now let's talk about the music. So getting noticed, notoriety, how to open the door, get in, get into the game so that some people know you exist. That's the first job. And that was always my job as a manager. My job is to open the door so the artist would walk through. I wasn't going to walk through and be on the stage. The act was. But there were some acts that just wouldn't go through the door. You had to push them. 
But the ones that would just readily go through, those are the ones that, that ended up winning. There's one band that was on the IRS roster that kind of falls more into the squeeze realm and that they, I don't think they were contrived, but you know, they got your attention. This was the band REM. It seems to be a band that was like, oh, we don't want to do that. No, we don't want to do that. We just want to play music. And yet they caught on and they got bigger with each record. Why do you think that happened? Well, uh, you know, the REM is, is a great example of just sticking with it. Um, they were the only act on IRS records to actually fulfill every record on the contract. They didn't renegotiate anytime during, you know, after the, after the go-go's had a number one record, the lawyer and the manager, first thing they do is walk in the office and say, we want a bigger deal. REM could just kept growing. You know, it wasn't until the last album that we actually sold like 2 million copies, you know, at which time they said, well, you know, we'd love to resign with IRS, but we think we owe it to ourselves to go to the open market and, you know, see what the world will offer us. And by this point, they were the darlings of many people at our label and obviously were very interesting to a lot of record companies around the world. Well, they finally got down to IRS records with the help of A&M because I needed Jerry Moss to help me with money and Warner Brothers. And finally, the group will go off to Warner Brothers, come back to my office and they say, well, I'm, here's what Warner Brothers have said. They say, whatever Miles offers you, we'll double it. And at that, I knew that was it. And so I, I looked at the, the manager and the, the lawyer and I said, here's what I suggest. Get out of my office, go straight to Warner Brothers, sign that deal. It's the best deal I ever saw. And of course they did. And of course it wasn't the best deal, but you're right. REM was an anomaly for IRS. They were not particularly uh, outrageous or they, they weren't outrageous at all. They didn't even want to be in their own videos. Okay. They just believed in what they were doing and they just kept at it and lived within their means. And they grew and grew and grew and grew. And I don't know that it's a formula that other bands could immediately copy, but it definitely worked. And I, I say in the book, kudos to them that they were the one band that really survived the whole IRS period, you know, and did did everything right. I mean, the Go-Go's broke up on the third album, Finding Cannibals on the second album, Wall of Voodoo on the second album. Most bands, you know, never made it beyond the first album. Here I was re-signing the Go-Go's and agreeing to uh, extend, you know, giving them higher royalty and more money in return for a couple of records at the end of the deal. Well, of course, they broke up on the third record, so I never got what I negotiated for. So, at REM, with REM and Squeeze, who you at first compared them to because they both were not so interested in the image. R.E.M. went huge. And in my mind, I mean, Squeeze is obviously very successful, one of my personal favorite bands. But what do you see as the difference? I am just curious. Squeeze and R.E.M. were, were actually similar in the idea that they didn't really want to play the game of the music business. Jules Holland, however... I mean, the difference is the squeeze was it really a, a two-headed animal, basically, you know, with Jules on one side and Chris and Glenn on the other. Chris and Glenn would have been more in the in the vein of of uh, REM. Same with Pat McDonald and Tim Buck Three. You know, there were there were a lot of IRS acts who were quirky enough who just who did not want to play the game. They were challenging the system, you know, as was I. I understood that. Although in the case of REM, I, I never did quite get why they didn't want to be in their own videos. I mean, I thought that, well, certainly you're going to be in your own video, are you? So I never did understand that. I didn't dwell deeply on REM in the book because really they were never any problem. You know, there was never any drama. I had dramas with Stan Ridgeway and with Oingo Boingo and with the Go-Go's and the Bangles. And, you know, you go down the list of some wild stories, you know, the cramps. I got thrown out of a hotel room because of the cramps. <laughs> it was a crappy hotel too. With REM, it was just plain sailing. I racked my brain for some sort of wild stories. And I would say, well, there I am. Well, actually, there really weren't that many. One of my favorite <laughs> stories in the book is uh, Hassel Atkins and how you acquired his uh, publishing rights to his music. And that's through the cramps. Can you touch on uh, Hassel Atkins and what hoops you had to jump through to get to him? Well, th that was one of the wildest stories. And the original guitar player in the police was a guy named Henry Padovani who Stewart had found because he looked right. He spoke Italian. He spoke English and, and, and this and that. And I hired him as head of international and put him in Paris for IRS. And one day he calls me, we have his offer for the Cramps song, but uh, the recorded the song, but the writer is Hassel Atkins, but we don't know how to find him. We need the approval from him to be able to do the license. It was for Peugeot cars. So you need the license from 
the person who did the recording and the person who wrote the song. Well, we tried to find Hassel Atkins and nobody knew where the hell this guy was. He disappeared from the scene. So I wrote to ASCAP and the BMI and to, you know, all the societies. And we ended up with, well, somebody said, well, I think he might be in Wisconsin, but the zip code we have is in Virginia. You know, so there was this combination. So I ended up with about four different combinations. So I said to my secretary, take every combination, send this letter, send a telegram to Hassel Adkins saying, we have money for you. Please call this number. About two weeks later, my secretary comes running to me saying, it's him. It's him. And I, who? It's Hassel Adkins. He's on the phone. Out of great curiosity, I pick up the phone and there's this, ah, it's Hassel Adkins. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, You have money for me. And I said, well, yes, I do. I I'm very interested in your music. And he said, well, yeah. I said, do you have a publisher? No, I don't like publishers. Anyway, I figured this guy was, you know, a real story. So I decided, well, I would actually go and meet him in person. Turns out he lived in West Virginia in Boone County, which, by the way, still has the co- a communist party, which gets elected. It's the only place in the United States where the Communist Party actually still exists. Anyway, it's in coal country. I mean, it's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, I go to I go to West Virginia. I find Hassel Atkins living in a shack. He doesn't read or write. He can only put an X on the contract. And so I had to find a lawyer because otherwise the contract wouldn't be valid. You know, so he said, well, I don't like lawyers. The only And the only lawyer I could find was one who put him in jail. So... <laughs> Cut a long story short, I, I ended up making the deal with Hassel Atkins. And then then once we had the song, we made the license and made the guy a lot of money because Peugeot took the commercial and, and it was launched one of their cars. And then it, they also spread it out to Germany and various other places. And then I sent my young my young uh, publishing guy to bring Hassel to Los Angeles to, uh, you know, we figured, well, we are his publisher. We should have all his songs. Well, of course, the only way to get him to Los Angeles was through vodka. So <laughs> I sent my young A&R guy saying, just get Hassel to Los Angeles. And he would call every now and then. He would say, look, I'm in Washington and Hassel won't get on the plane unless I get a bottle of vodka for him. I said, just get the vodka. Just get him on the plane. But I told this A&R guy who was a young guy, I said, look, this was going to be a wild story. Take notes. Take notes of everything. And I included it in the book because it was so funny. You know, here's this poor guy living in the middle of nowhere, you know, who all of a sudden out of the blue, Peugeot decides they're going to use this obscure song. He ended up making, you know, a nice chunk of money. Unfortunately, he was an alcoholic by this point, And uh, he actually died of uh, alcoholism. It was the cramps version that, that, that got you to this, that, that point. Right? Yeah. But it was, yeah. it was a very obscure cramps version. Yeah, I mean, that's what, that's I, mean I, I mean, they, they had the ability of finding very unique off the wall songs, which is one of the reasons I really liked the cramps. They were pretty off the wall themselves and where they found Hassel Atkins, Lord knows they were this underground group. And, and I say in the book, you know, that I really liked the cramps, but I don't think they really figured that a guy like me would, could like them because they had gone through life getting rejected everywhere they went. And I, I saw it myself. We got thrown out of a restaurant just because we looked, you know, they, they looked weird. I looked fine. I got thrown out of a hotel because they showed up to see me one day. And the hotel says, we don't want your kind here. What kind is that? Here I am in my looking like a normal guy. We don't want your kind here. It's your friends. Cramps went through life. I guess nobody really accepting them, but I did. But uh, I, I say in the book, I don't know that they ever would have believed that I really liked them. Just curious, what happened to the A&R guy who escorted Hassel Atkins back? Ooh. Well, one day he came to see me and he says, uh, Miles, I'm going to have to leave the company. I'm, join- I'm going into the oil business. Oh. I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, I'm going in the oil business. Turned out he was olive oil. And he made a very successful olive oil company called Lucini, which became a big deal. I get and he that. sold it and made a lot of money. And he's doing very well. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's my olive oil from Whole Foods. I always get that. Yeah, uh, Lucini olive oil actually is very, very good. Yeah. But he sold it. Now he's... He's looking about making a new a new brand. Well, you also have a unique story in that sort of in that you reinvent yourself after IRS Records. Like I'm leaving IRS Records, and if I told you I'm going to get into belly dancing, I don't think you probably would have believed that. Well, I think it really was it sprung from the Desert Rose success. You right. know, the fact that we had an Arab artist on duetting with Sting, 
a lot of Arab artists, uh, I guess they had heard that I grew up in the Middle East and could get by with Arabic. I started getting calls from big stars in the Middle East saying, well, would you be interested in my records in America? So I put a few out and then we were curious because they were actually selling. And we wanted, well, who's buying them? Well, it wasn't Arabs because they were getting downloading it off the Internet. So it was American women who were into belly dancing. And I thought, well, there's an interesting concept. American women who have nothing to do with the Middle East or belly dancing, who... Who knew that this existed? And I thought, well, if I created a show thinking of Riverdance, which was very successful, selling Irish music, which was not hip, you know, top 40 music, but it was a very successful show. So I thought, well, if I could create a, a Riverdance style show with belly dancers, maybe that would help me sell the music. And that was really the germination of the belly dance superstars who ended up doing 800 shows in 23 countries around the world or something. So it was successful in a lot of ways, but never successful enough to really do what I wanted. So we, we finally gave it up. But funnily enough, it led to Pentagon calling me because I became sort of the de facto Anglo who knew anything about Arabic music in America. So when the Pentagon was thinking about how do we win arts and minds in the Middle East, you know, after invading Iraq, turns out I was the only guy they could call that could help them. So I was asked to go and tell the Pentagon what to do. And so I became an advisor to the Pentagon. <laughs> One of my great <laughs> moments of uh, achievement, I would guess. But who would have thought from belly dancers, the Pentagon? <laughs> Is that something your dad would be proud of? Well, the funny box? thing was that my father had had a hand in putting Saddam Hussein in power in the first place. Right. So <laughs> I, the other day I did a podcast with Tory Clark, who was the deputy secretary of defense with Donald Rumsfeld. And I reminded her, I said, well, you know, you invited me to the Pentagon. And well, did you know that my father had actually put Saddam Hussein in power? And she said, well, we did actually know that. <laughs> so, but anyway, I was, I went to the Pentagon and I told them what to do. Uh, not that they paid any attention to what I said, <laughs> because I don't think any of them had a clue, but still it was, it was fun. But there were good people at the Pentagon. I must have, I, you know, I was kind of impressed with the fact that they wanted to do something good. And Tori Clark later came through. She got me a PBS special on Arabic music. And we succeeded in one of the things that I pitched to the Pentagon. Al Jazeera bought this documentary we made about Americans working with Arab music musicians and proving that really under under the skin we're all the same. The belly dance superstars after, you know, you were finished and the tour finished, did they move on in the same arena? Well, a lot of them are, are teachers now and they're actually they're they're all quite famous and successful teachers, you know, they made a lot more money out of it than I did. When it first started, people would say, well, who are you to say who's a superstar? I can tell who's a good dancer by just looking at it, the same way as I can tell what's a good good song. Yeah, I, I like it. I would pay to watch this person. So my judgment on dan dancers was not because they had some great read a list of accomplishments. I would actually look and say, would I pay to watch this person dance? And uh, that was really my criteria. It was the same as same thing as, you know, would I buy this music record? I knew what I liked. I knew what would appeal to me. And I figured I wasn't so crazy that if it appealed to me, it might appeal to others as well. But I did cause a, you know, a bit of a furor within the belly dance community because they, here's this man coming in from the outside telling, you know, saying who's a superstar or not. And then no, all the dancers that, that were into superstars became very successful and uh, become major teachers in, the, in that world. That's good to know. I wanted to go back to, you touched on, uh, you know, a good song when you hear it. One of the stories in the book is about the recording of Mercury Falling, Sting's album, where you didn't hear a single at all. And so what is it about uh, the song? And um, it seemed like Sting was happy. With, I mean, you, you told him what, what you needed to tell him. But was that the beginning of the end with uh, your relationship with Sting? Sting was always somebody that wanted to hear the truth. But I think in the beginning, he really wrote very catchy songs. But I think he probably got a little bored with them. So the formula, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, verse, chorus, is sort of the standard formula. And that album, he got to the point where he was the, the, the chorus was not coming in where I expected it to. And I told him so. He agreed with me, but he said, I like the way it sounds and, you know, I'll stick with it and I'll pay the price if it doesn't work. And then I talked to the producer who agreed with me, but said it wasn't his role to tell Sting how to write a song. And I said, yeah, but you're the producer. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. Well, I made Sting agree that we would change producers on the next record, which we did. 
So I know I don't think that had any effect on the relationship, but it was really a matter of just things. Sting liked to have hits, and we, and we did on the next record. You know, he went back to writing songs with a more traditional verse chorus. And then after I stopped being manager, he kind of reverted back to verse, 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 verse. So the chorus didn't really happen to where it was supposed to. And of course, he didn't have any hits. Did that ever appeal to you to be a producer or someone, you know? Well, I effectively was for many of the acts, although I never took credit for it. But I did influence how the records were made or I chose songs and said this is the single or whatever. In a lot of ways, I was a producer. The manager in a lot of ways is a producer or can be. It's not just a business. You know, some managers are business people who do the contract. Some are creative. Some get involved in the imagery and all sorts of things. I always found the imagery and and how you sell it, marketing, marketing, merchandising, uh, logos, all sorts of things, sort of interesting aspects of what's necessary to, to work. I was lucky with Sting and that most of the songs he wrote were hit songs. He had this great knack of writing great songs, which was not the case with my earlier bands, Wishbone Ash, for instance. I mean, they were great players, but they were not brilliant at writing hit singles. There's a phrase in the book that you mentioned, that you mentioned a couple of times. It's called, you say, um, it's a garlic milkshake. Um, <laughs> and you didn't really define it in the book. What is, what is garlic milkshake to you? I did these songwriting events. And one of the reasons that I bought this castle was to really create songwriting events to get more songs to choose from to, to record when you, when you make an album, because if you don't have that hit single, the album kind of disappears. So you really want as many choices as possible. And one of the songwriters was a Nashville writer who came to me and, and I, he came for, for one of the weeks that we did the songwriting retreat. And he said, well, my daddy always used to say, make sure the chorus comes in like a garlic milkshake. And his point was that the chorus needs to do something. It needs to be obvious. It needs to be memorable. It needs to stick out. And that's what Sting didn't do on, on that Mercury Falling album. All of a sudden, the thing that stuck out was the middle bit. And I said, well, there's the chorus. He said, no, that's the middle eight. I said, well, well, where's the chorus? And that's where the chorus was. It didn't have the garlic milkshake element to it. But Roxanne did. Walking on the Moon. Message in a Bottle, all these had great garlic milkshake moments. And all hit singles really have that thing. They have that one memorable thing that sticks and is hammered home. That's the thing that makes the song work. The Nashville writers, they're much more disciplined than the rock writers are, but they tend to follow formulas. So my idea of the songwriting retreat is if, if you get somebody that's good at formula and you put in with somebody that's a bit wacky from the progressive world, you might end up with something unique. And we did. We ended up with four number ones that way. I mean, Keith Urban met the Go-Go's at the castle and ended up writing a number one song with them. I mean, who would have ever thought that this Australian guitar player, brilliant as he was, good singer, good looking, would write a hit song with two of the Go-Go's who were punk girls from L.A. The castle had a big impact by basically mixing things up, by putting things that shouldn't be together together. That was really the secret of the police. Reggae and pop and punk and reggae, it kind of worked. It's like a chemistry set. You know, you mix three different chemicals that weren't supposed to be together and ooh, all of a sudden you've got, you know, whatever. So sometimes it's those crazy combinations that work. One more crazy combination I think okay. I heard about from you. Uh, there was just a room when the Bengals and the Go-Go's broke up, you said... What about the bangos? Is that true? You want to get two, the, the bands together and just call them the bangos or the bango-goes? Uh, <laughs> uh, it sounds like something I would have done. And I, I probably did because the go-go's broke up basically because Charlotte Caffey, who's a wonderful person and a great songwriter, was making more money than Gina Shock, you know, who was the drummer. And she kind of resented it. I think they, they later realized what they had and reformed. And the Bengals kind of degenerated through a series of things that had nothing really to do with the group. But anyway, the point was, is that I figured, well, you know, you, you could take a couple of people from one group and a couple of people from the other group and put them together and it would probably work. So, yeah, I would, <laughs> I would say I probably did do that. <laughs> okay. I know we're running out of time, but I just want to ask you real, really quickly about the film, the upcoming film. We, we were, we were once rebels. How do you feel about it? Have you seen any part of it yet? When the director came to me with the idea of doing it, I said, look, I mean, basically, I mean, it's going to be your baby. I don't want to influence you. I don't want to be the 
the guy telling you what you need to do. Because a lot of the people thought that somehow we would we would control what was happening. And I, I didn't want it to be, I wanted it to be an outsider looking in, basically. And I said, but really the story of IRS that's universal is that we started off being rebels, but we ended up as another just another corporation. And I said, that arc is interesting to me because a lot of people are going to go through that. And it's an arc that's interesting for people to avoid, you know. So IRS has a lot of lessons within it. So make sure that that's what's in the story, because that's really where the story is. So you have to think story. You have to think what's going to hold the attention of people. Where's the garlic milkshake? I'm waiting to see how this guy ends up. But it was fun to see a lot of the acts and what they had to say. It was fun for me. I hope we get to see it. (laughs) Yeah, we can't wait to see it. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. So the book is out now. It's Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business, Miles A. Copeland III, the A stands for Axe. By the way, do your brothers have other cool middle names? <laughs> Axe is a great middle name. Yeah. Actually, my oldest son is Miles Axe Copeland IV. Nice. My youngest son, his name is Axton. Perfect. Axton Emerson. So, so yeah, Axe seems to be the a name that does sort of play with the family, you know. And here I am in the castle, and yeah, we have battle axes on the wall. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It was a fun read. Really, uh, both Holly and I really enjoyed it. And uh, IRS was a label that helped shape our music, our DNA, all those bands. We, yep. Yeah, it was. Just, there was a time when we looked at the label and like, oh, if this is on, if this is on IRS, it's got to be good. It's or it's worth our time. And so that happened a lot of times. So thank well, you it was so much. fun. It was fun. Basically, I mean, I was signing what I liked, yeah. and I, I was not really following any rule other than the fact that it has to be affordable. And I have to like it. And I figured all I got to do is just reach whoever, you know, there must be other crazy people like me out there in the world. And I just have to find them. That was the game. Anyway, I guess we found you. So <laughs> yes, you did. You did. And look at us now. I tell you. <laughs> Take care. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Miles. Thank Appreciate you, Miles. it. Yeah. Bye-bye. Okay. That concludes our talk with Miles Axe Copeland Third. His book is Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business. The book really reeled us in, I think. His, the stories are great, and I really loved hearing him tell some of them. Love learning about the castle and the songwriting retreat, I guess you call it, or songwriting workshop that he holds there. Yeah, very fun. Just like our podcast. So if you loved what you heard, and this is your first time, welcome to the What Differences Make podcast. Please subscribe to it. Uh, and you can also find us on YouTube. We were trying to build up our subscriber base. How do they find us on YouTube, Holly? At the What Difference Does It Make podcast. And thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. We're so happy to have you. Yes, new episodes every Friday. So come aboard, won't you? Join us. FYI, we are a proud member of the Pantheon podcast family. That's a good FYI, yes. <laughs> Very important. Yes, so until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.